Hi everybody, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you are listening to episode 35. This is an important episode because we're going to talk about the partition of 1947 with our guest Anjal Malotra. She is the author of the book Ramnits of Partition, but depending where you live it can also be titled Ramnits of a Separation. It is such a beautiful and heartbreaking book. If someone were to learn more about partition, this is the book I would 100% recommend. It is a special book and it's going to be a special episode. Before we start, I gotta do this because running the Brown History Instagram account, the podcast, the newsletter, and everything in between takes a lot of time and a lot of work. And if you'd like to support and contribute, please consider being a patron. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com and that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Let's begin. Here we go. Yeah, I said I, it took a couple of weeks, but you finally got it. Yeah, thank you so much for it. It was such a beautiful book to read, honestly. I, I think we can get started now. To, to be honest, when I got the book in my hands, I didn't want to read another partition book, and I didn't want to read another book about objects. But that was by far one of the best books I have ever read on partition. That will be my like my go-to book to recommend to anybody because it's such a beautiful, sad heartbreaking and deep book i don't even think it's a book on partition it's really a book on on life and and how to deal with things and and the fragility of life and and objects and what they mean to people and the relationship between person and object there's there's me and my wife have been talking about it after i finish each story i discuss it with my wife and we just have these arguments and long conversations about what and how things are and I'm, I can keep going on, but it's such a great book. Honestly, good job. I'm, I'm so... India. India. I'm so moved by, by this. I Honestly, sometimes you're right. There are so many books on partition and someone like me particularly who reads on partition every single day, all yeah. the time for years. Now it's been like 10 years since I've been doing this work. I think I'm always thinking of how we can look at it from a different angle. Yeah. And the only angle that always seems to make sense to me is one that encompasses all of what you just said and does not limit the understanding of partition just to South Asia, but kind of to all of humanity. Like I know people whose grandparents have lived through the Holocaust who have read this book and, and have understood it, innately understood it, which should show us that there is something so intrinsic about the, the human condition. Amazing, that yeah. binds us, you know. It is it is a very universal the way it's written. Usually, partition books are very history focused, but this book was very universal focused, and and I really love that because I could share this with Thank someone else. You. Um, this this is me and you talking right now is a is a full circle moment for me. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing because when I I don't know I'm gonna tell the story, but when I when when uh, I was an engineering student at Concordia University in Montreal, and this was like 2013, and I would walk. I, was there too. What I know you that's my full circle. What full circle are you talking about? Oh, I thought you meant like India Pakistan full circle. Oh, no, 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 this oh, is personal. Oh my god, wait, Essen, we were actually in the same building. Yes, you? yes, you were in the EV building. Yes, I would oh walk god. by there. I walked by there with my friends who were non South Asian, and suddenly I stopped everybody. And I'm like, what is this? And they have this like art display there that they have that changes every month. And this time they had these South Asian photos and artifacts. And I look closer and it's about partition. And I'm like, guys, guys, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. This is partition. You guys need to know this. And this is Montreal where, you know, things like that don't happen. So to me, this was like, whoa, what is this? And I saw your name there. 
And I think it was the last day of your exhibit, but I tried to find you online and I think you were having another exhibit in some French college somewhere far further down the city. And it was only, I think, for a few days. And I think I had like an exam or something and I couldn't do it. But that's the first time when I heard of you. And that was 2013. And then fast forward, I think five, six years later, you have your book published in 2017, I think. That's right. You know, so to me, it's a full circle moment. And and it just shows wow. you how long you've been working on this journey and, and on this book. And, you know, it's a long, long journey because, you know, I graduated engineering and then I came after and started Brown History. And then you were already kind of like there. Oh, I had no idea about this. I honestly had no idea because, you know, had I known that you were also in Concordia, we would have definitely been friends because I had a really, I mean, I think I had a really difficult time at Concordia. Really? Because, well, I think it's because there are not a lot of South Asian no, people. No, which in, is so weird for you to have that. Yeah. Right. And whereas like it, the minute you like walk over to the engineering side, like everyone is some kind of brown. You know, yeah. either they're like a South Asian or Arab. And it felt really like, you know, my place. But I didn't know anything about engineering, obviously. But I really wish that we had been friends. Listen, if we if you had met me that, then I wouldn't even care about history. I would probably say the same thing. Yes. Yeah. You know, so I wouldn't. Okay. You, it would be a different me. <laughs> this is better. Yeah, this is way better. Um, so yeah, so I guess we, I kind of already gave you the introduction that you started in really early on. Mm -hmm. And I guess for people who, I guess, I think maybe it's more, we kind of talk about what partition is first to people who don't know, and then we can kind of go on to your personal family experiences and Mm -hmm. how you got started. So Mm -hmm. on, and briefly, can you explain partition is very briefly in the year 1947, uh, with, decolonization and the British leaving what was then undivided India, they drew a line between the land which divided India as we knew it then of the British empire into the independent nations of Pakistan and India. And this led to what I think is the largest mass migration of people in the world, approximately official numbers say something like 12 to 14 million people were displaced and about 1 million were killed either um, in, in, a, in various ways. And even the migration happened in a various, uh, in a number of ways on, on foot, on train, on buses, on trucks, people, if they could take flights, they took flights, people took ships. And uh, of course, these are official numbers. So you can just assume that the reality is, is far larger yes. than that. And um I think that for a lot of people, I mean, now I'm just getting into a little bit of a nuanced um, understanding of what partition is for a lot of people. I think the, I guess they didn't think partition was going to be a permanent thing. So and for a lot of people, because they just couldn't understand, you know, how can you divide a land? Right. But the politics of partitioning, of course, is far more complex where uh, political leaders, um, And of course, the need for nationhood plays a very large role. So, and and that I think I I will, if someone wants to learn more about that, I will refer you to either Yasmin Khan's excellent, The Great Partition or Nisid Hajari's Midnight Furies. Both of them give a very good overview of uh, what partition was from a political lens, uh, like kind of start to finish when 
including riots, migration, and the aftermath of mm-hmm. partitioning. But in terms of the human cost and the human movement, I think people just really were stunned that our land can be partitioned and people that were once ours can be divided. And here is where my grandparents, all four of my grandparents migrated from what became Pakistan to what became India. Right. Um, And what was their journey like? It was different. I mean, I think the other thing with partition is we can't ever generalize. Like even if I, I have found this on a number of occasions where even though two people may have migrated from the same village, and gone to the same village on the other side, their journeys will also be widely different. Within families, members of the same family can have varying experiences because of their age group, because of what they saw, what they felt, you know. So all four of my grandparents also had different journeys. My maternal side both came from Lahore. And I think they were relatively safer journeys because they knew people on the Indian side. Right. Now, my paternal side, my grandmother came from the frontier province, which is now Khyber Pakhtunwa province in Pakistan. And my grandfather came from Punjab in Pakistan, in, in Gujarat, nearby to Rawalpindi, a little place called Malakpal. And they had very difficult journeys because they didn't really know anyone on the Indian side. And so not only was the actual journey taking trains and, you know, Tanga, and my grandmother had to take a little boat first to a main train station. So of course the process of movement was very difficult, but then once you got to India, you didn't know anybody there. And so both of them lived in a refugee camp for many, many years. And so I think that not only have you le- you know, lost your home, but you're also staying in a camp and then you feel further reduced. Right, you know? reduced is a good word. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot, like everything was reduced for them, you know, not just stature, wealth, but you know, even that word refugee, you, you kind of see it around you, you wear it and you are made to, to feel like now you and that word are, uh, are one almost, you know, you don that word. And I, I remember my grandfather trying very hard to shed that word. Wow. How, how does a young girl in her twenties end up in Montreal making an exhibit on partition and then writing a book about it after? She does so because her grandfather went to Canada in the 50s. Really? Yeah, he went to Guelph. I think we've talked about this briefly, yeah. I uh, think so. But you know, he's, he's Hindu and he, he went in the late 1950s because he got a football scholarship. Now things... <laughs> Soccer. Huh, like what we know as football. football yeah. yes. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's why you yeah. went there. Well, it was easier. I think it was easier because I had family there and I had history there and my mom was born in Etobicoke. And um, and I know that you live live not far from there. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same like Toronto, right? Nearby. And every every time we are in Etobicoke, she always points out like, this is where I was born and this is where I used to live. And my grandmother used to work as an Avon lady, which is, uh, do you know what an Avon lady is? Sales. Yeah, they would go door to door showing like makeup and stuff to women. And I, I just think like it's so it's such a quintessential like immigrant experience. Yeah. You know, and uh, so anyway, my grandfather went there in the 50s and he studied chemistry and he played football for like UFT and Ryerson and Guelph. And wow. uh, then he worked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
then he started working as a chemist and my grandmother joined him and my mom was born. And so we, we have like long ties to Canada. Okay. And when I was finishing school, I wanted to study fine art. And at the time, I think this was 2006, 2007, there weren't any good, in my opinion, good fine art universities in India. There were a lot of great design schools. But there wasn't a good place where I could go and apart from say Shanti Niketan or something, where I could go and study painting or I could study print, you know. So I applied to the Ontario College of Art. And uh, I went there for many years. And then after that, I went to Concordia. And I think that, um, as I told you, I had a really difficult time in Concordia. And the one thing that made it worth it was the faculty. And faculty particularly that were writers. So I was in a department called traditional printing, which is lithography, bookmaking, papermaking, silkscreen. This is what I was doing my degree in. And we got to meet faculty from all over the fine art program. And some of those faculty happened to be writers. And I think it's a bit weird that I didn't, I didn't naturally veer to writing because my family owns a bookshop in India. So it seems like the most natural thing, but I had never considered that I even had that I could, like I didn't even think that I could write. I didn't think I had anything to say. And I think when I started uh, meeting faculty that were writers and they told me that, you know, you can write and also make art at the same time, which is such a natural concept, you know, text and image. Right. Uh, that text can also be image in some way. Okay. You know, um, that I started to think about writing and I started to become interested in my history, which again, I think as a young South Asian girl, when you leave home at 17, you feel like, at least I felt like, you know, you can erase your history because you want to be a different person, right? You're young, you're studying something different. It's a bit unconventional. Right. And you meet people from all over the world and you think that, okay, well, here's a chance to make like a new me. Right. And then you come full circle and you think, okay, well, no, actually, this is a chance to, to know more about me. Like that's, the, how it, that's how it usually goes. Exactly. But you need to go through, you know, the cycle to find, to find like a deeper part of yourself. Like you allow yourself to descend into yourself, I guess. Right. So you so, had no writing experience before. Like you, hadn't, you weren't a writer. You didn't have journals and notebooks, nothing. No, and I, I still feel like I'm, I'm like, Every time I start something new, I feel like, okay, well, I've absolutely forgotten how to do this. You know, uh, because I do think like when you come from another medium, like you yeah. come from another discipline, it is very humbling to, to know that you really don't know like the foundations of it. Like I never studied writing. So I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be, ever be able to teach writing or give anyone any writing advice because I kind of learn as I go along. Right. And I think in some ways you can break the rules a little bit as well because you're not like formally trained in it. Then then you don't know. Okay, so here you are with no writing skills, quote unquote. Mm. How did the concept of the mm. book come about? Because you know, you're you, you. you take partition in a very different you see it in a different angle, which is which is never done before, I think. So how did that come about, that concept? So the year 2013, I um I was really tired with my program. I had to make a thesis and I say make because I'm in a visual art program and you have to make something to put in a gallery space. So I'm really kind of, I feel really wrung out and I say, okay, I'm going to take a gap year. 
So I come back to India and I start working with my family and I say, okay, well, if the idea comes, it comes, you know, because I have no ideas for my thesis at this point. And that was when I was introduced to these two very mundane objects at my Nana's house. Mm-hmm. And it's what the book starts with. It starts with a ghada and a gulf that came yes. from Lahore to Amritsar. And I felt almost silly for not ever noticing them because they were so ordinary. They were so everyday. Like you could just pass them by. But I think that when my Nana's elder brother, when he held the ghada or he showed me how lassi is made in it or how you measure a piece of fabric with the gulls, I think that he... He was transported back to his childhood in Chunamandi in Lahore. And, you know, he's talking about the milk they used to drink and the chilgozas they used to eat. And there was something obviously, like it was obviously nostalgic. Yeah. But there was something also really, um, it was almost as if he'd crossed the partition line and gone to the other side, you know, in memory. This is possible in memory. We can cross borders in memory, just like we can cross them in dreams. And so, and I felt that that was beautiful and it was so powerful that an object can give you the capability to, to return to your home. Obviously objects do it all the time. We just don't pay enough attention to them, right? Objects by nature cannot speak. So any sentimental value they hold is what we put into them. So after this transformative experience that nobody else in the room except for me seem to notice Hmm. um i just started thinking about uh, the things that people carried you know like everyone would always say to me that we didn't know that partition was going to happen we had only a few hours to pack so i started thinking if you do have a few hours to pack what do you take do you take something that's monetarily important do you take something that's sentimental do you take something that's utilitarian or do you just take something totally bizarre because it's the first thing that you know your hand falls on. And it took me around Delhi. I live in Delhi. So I started asking, you know, older people. And then it took me to Pakistan the yes. following year. Okay, before we get and, there, huh? can we can we just explain to everybody what your book is? The, the What is your book about? Um, it's called Remnants of Partition, although it has two titles. So if you're in South Asia, uh, which is Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Nepal, Maldives, Mm -hmm. you will find remnants of a separation. And if you are anywhere else in the world, America, Canada, the UK, Australia, or any European country, you will likely find remnants of partition. But they're the same book. So don't buy both because then you'll have both. Um, So you go around interviewing survivors of partition. Well, that was the idea, but then it's it's very hard to ask someone directly, you know, oh, you lived through partition, it must have been horrible. It's like saying, oh, you lived through Holocaust, tell me all about it, you know? Right. I felt like that was so direct and I felt like it was almost intrusive in its directness. And I needed something that was a bit softer, that was a bit more um, accessible to me, that was a bit removed from the actual event to get into it. So I started asking about the things that they carried or the things they wish they had carried or the things that they wish they'd left behind. And it would, the reason for that was of course, the object would act as a catalyst for remembrance, but then also we would never begin the conversation at partition. We would begin the conversation saying, um, oh, you carried this pen. 
why did you carry this pen? Or oh, you were a university student, okay. And you thought that you would enroll in a university here in India, okay. And um, anyone else in your house was studying your sister? And how many other people were there in your house? And where did you live? And how did you find out partition was going to happen? Did you read about it in the paper? Did you hear about it on the news? Did you hear it on the radio? Tell me about your house. Tell me about your mohalla. I think what, you know, one question always led to another and it was always about everyday life. Because I think the one uh, misconception a lot of people have about partition is that it happened on one or two days in August and then it subsided. Whereas I feel like partition was such a long process which started so many years before 1947. And some would say that it still hasn't normalized, you know, in the geopolitical sense, in the South right. Asian India, it has not. But what, when you talk about people and how people migrated, what you're talking about is the fracture of everyday life. And so what I was trying to understand is what your everyday life was like before partition and what happened to it after. So I was trying to populate the landscape with, the things from that erstwhile landscape. The second chapter was so dark and so violent. I I literally stopped reading and I didn't want to read the next chapter because it was just so horrific. And and the way she tells a story without much emotion and casually and and it just it hurt a lot. And I, I think one of the most craziest thing about this is that she never had any recovery process. She, this happened. She's back settled in her new world. Life moves forward and she doesn't talk about it. She doesn't heal. She doesn't. Um, there's no therapy. There's no counseling. And that's it. And then years go by and then you come along asking questions and she just kind of tells it to you so dry and i'm just wondering what is the meaning of life like it just makes you question everything because and i think it hurts even more at least with the holocaust there's a certain detachment because that's a that's a different culture and a different language and different people but this is you know someone that looks like me who speaks the same language as me and it hits you hard the homeland that she left was flooded so it's not even it doesn't even exist anymore it's an ironic twisted thing and i don't know it was just really brutal and um i don't even know where to go with this but i as someone like you sitting there in front of her and you're looking at the sword that she's holding in front of her and she's talking about it and you see her family and and she's there with her i think um grandson grandson and her son's mother-in-law i think who also went through it and they just sitting there and she's telling you this casual story and and the story becomes so much more because it's it, to me at least it was like uh like evidence that this is something that happened this is my proof like i know i don't want you to think i'm telling a lie because it's so crazy but here is the proof of it and there's no like statue there's no uh plaque not even a plaque not even a, a like a nice little dedication or anything like that so it's just it's just insane that that happened and i wonder for you when you sit there and you're listening to this how do you hold yourself together you know one thing i've had to learn is that you and i belong to a generation that want to talk about our feelings but the one thing i learned with the generations that come before us is that this is not an understood fact there was never any need or compulsion to talk about how we felt or what we went through as a therapeutic process 
So this is a very modern um, construct. Yeah. Um, the story of the sword. I was unprepared for it completely. Uh, I was invited by her grandson who said, well, my grandmother has this sword that's from Rahul Pindi. And I know you live in Delhi, but we're in Chandigarh. It's, it's three, four hours away. Why don't you take the train and come? And I said, yeah, sure. So I hop on the train one morning. It leaves at like six or 7 a.m. And I arrive in Chandigarh by midday and uh, by the morning. And I, I go to their house and... This woman is this small, demure, sort of quiet woman. And she starts telling me the story about this sword. And the sword is from Rawalpindi. But she is from a place called Mirpur. Mm -hmm. And Mirpur is in now, now in, in Pakistan. Um, and that's new Mirpur. Old Mirpur, as you mentioned, is um, buried under the submerged, under the water of the Mangla Dam. So now... When the tide is high, everything is submerged. When the tide is low, the old city rises to the top. And there are photographs of old temples rising to the surface and old gurdwaras. And it's beautiful, you know. It's, it's, I can't explain it. It's almost like it reveals itself a little bit from time to time. But anyway, this lady is telling me the story about Mirpur and how they had to flee from Mirpur because um, there was an attack. Mm -hmm. on their village and they had to run through the forest through for three days she ran through the forest nine months pregnant nine months pregnant without any shoes without any sweater because she couldn't grab anything the only thing that she could grab was the sword and that also because her husband had it in his hand because he took it as a weapon to protect them so um, they're running through the forest and she says that I, I can't run anymore. And she gives birth to her child in the forest and they have nothing to cut the umbilical cord with. So the husband uses the sword to cut it. And you know, like in doing so, the sword just gains so much importance right there. You know, it, it helps her give life to something. And then she's too tired to walk. She's too tired to hold the child. They debate on whether to take the child with them, leave the child behind, because they're not in any position to um, fend for themselves. How can they care for a child that requires so much? So the, the parents, they, they, they talk about whether to leave the child behind. Many people are leaving their children behind. Many people are running. Many people are burying children alive. And, you know, I think this is, you mentioned like the manner in which the story is being told. She was telling it to me, not in this impassioned way that I'm telling you with sadness and, and just being overwhelmed, but she was telling it in a sort of removed, almost journalistic way, as if she is looking at someone else going through the story and relaying it as she's seeing it. And it, it was hard to get my head around that fact. But I suppose at some point, there are memories that you divorce yourself from completely, maybe because you have to. And you have no choice. This is just my assumption. Maybe that's another reason. But this is just the way she was telling it. In this dry, very, this happened, that happened, and this happened, then this happened. So anyway, they decide to take the child. And they reach Jambu. And she finally finds a hospital. And they keep the sword. The husband keeps the sword. And she says to me, like, she, she tells a long story short. She says to me that, 
every year that we clean our house, I tell my husband, throw this sword. And every year he would say, no, it's the only thing that is from my home. It has the words pindi on it, ar pindi. So he says, it's the only thing that's from my home. And I was, I was wondering as she was saying this, did she think that it was the only thing that reminded her of that journey? You know, um, that, that, is, that the same object can be so heartfelt to some people and be so despised by others for what it, what, what it reminds them of. Um, anyway, I missed my train to Delhi that day. I took another train in the evening and I just couldn't sleep that night. You know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't like, I just like you, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And do you know why it was? It's because at that time, no one talked about Meerpur. Like no one talked about the massacres that happened in Jammu. No one talked about the massacres that happened in Kashmir. I had never read a single book about it. And it was such a horrific story. And I couldn't believe that this had been silenced. That Hindus and Sikhs in Mirpur, Muslims in Jammu had gone through these incredible massacres and some had survived. And no one had asked them their stories. And so I reached out to someone who I knew had done Meerpuri interviews for the 1947 partition archive to basically say, how did you deal with it? And then I ended up reaching out to a bunch of other oral historians I knew to ask them, what does this do to you? How do you write these stories down? Because I was finding it very difficult to stay grounded, balanced, um, objective. I think objective is the word. I was feeling I couldn't divorce myself from stories any longer. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, we're talking about the great responsibility on oral historians, but what it does to you as, as a person. Um, yes, of course, you have an innate responsibility to do justice to these stories, but I feel like it, it, it sort of fundamentally changes you as a person. What it did to me was I didn't even realize it was doing that until years later. Like this interview is when I realized, and I had been doing interviews for five years, five years. It forces you to mature as a person. Of course, this goes without saying. I was 23 when I started. I was forced to mature very quickly to rise to the occasion to do justice to these stories. But I think it also made me hugely introverted. Um, I, I found it very difficult to make meaningful connections with people my age because I just didn't really know what to talk to like common people you know mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know how to date or, to, or talk to guys um, I, I just stopped feeling young I think that's what it was and while I think that listening to these stories is a huge privilege I think that it it really like it makes me it makes me feel really old and um I don't know. I feel heavy. I feel heavy. Yeah. And I, I think that I need to stop recording stories for a little while to, to find an equilibrium within yourself, you know? Yeah. A vacation, I guess. Yeah. I don't really do well with that yeah. word. No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a tremendous responsibility on you. And, and we, we are very thankful for it, that you're doing this work. And we're very appreciative of it. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> You're right. I'm fine. You sure? Every, yeah, every time I talk about it, I think about her, you know? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I, it's in my head now, too. And I just, uh, 
yeah i don't know i think as we get older um we see how fragile life is and and things you know when i was a kid watching an action movie was nothing but now if i were to watch the same action movie i feel bad for anybody that gets killed in the movie and i, I think the saddest part is that we didn't learn from it yes yes i know that's the tragedy of it all is that we didn't learn we didn't move forward the partition is one of the biggest forced migrations in the world but it's not really talked about and to some extent um you know it's kept very silent and and hidden and i can't help comparing it to the holocaust because with the holocaust you have this large amount of museums and film and literature on it and i wanted to know why you think that the partition isn't talked about much and i have two theories can i can i share my theories yeah. number one with the holocaust you had a group of good people and a good and a group of bad people so it was very black and white but with partition it was your own neighbor and your own brother and your own family attacking you and number two it just it just happened so fast that before anyone can really process the grief and what happened it just it just just happened and that's what i think but what do you what do you think well i would agree with your first point that it's very hard to assert blame because they really you know if you think about it everyone is to blame on one hand and no one is to blame yeah. like the question that i still don't have an answer to despite working on partition for a decade is why did it happen how how did it happen you know like i i and who was responsible for it i feel this question always still like it really messes with my head because it's easy to say that the british were responsible for it and in part they really are mm-hmm. but not entirely not entirely and i think this is where it gets complicated because you're right it isn't black and white and there are exceptions to every rule in this circumstance and you will always find the opposite of a story that you think you know very well and i always think about it like this like if you have grown up in a particular national construct of india or pakistan or bangladesh um and you have heard one kind of story yeah you must always remember that the very opposite of that story is very likely to exist on the other side of the border which i think um you know this is how we unlearn this mm-hmm. is how we unlearn things we don't even know that we have you know biases we don't know we've grown up with which i think working on partition you 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 do every day like i was unlearning all the time my theory about silence the silence of partition is like as old as partition Wow. And it is um it is something that's practiced by many people. You know, it is a kind of remembering, it is a kind of forgetting. Um I asked my grandmother because I I've been working on a book on generational memory for many years. So part of it was also interviewing my grandmother about my paternal grandmother about how much she spoke to her children, my father and his siblings. and she said that what was the need to talk to them about what did they know about a partition so mm. now you already understand that memory isn't being passed down at least not willingly if someone asks like i ask maybe it is given to me maybe it is bequeathed but of their own volition memory is not being passed down is there too much pain in memory is there too much sadness in memory is there too much shame associated to memory why has an entire life pre 1947 been sort of silenced and i i really think one of the greatest reasons is because there was so much 
Firstly, there was so much sadness, but there was such a need to move forward. You know, um, as I mentioned, my paternal grandparents were living in a camp, so it was hand to mouth every day. And I think this is the case for a lot of refugees that came at least to major cities that didn't have family in those cities and were living in camps. They had to make do with whatever they had, clothes, utensils. They had to feed their children. They had to send them to school. They had to find employment. And I think in all of this, thinking about what was left behind wasn't really of importance. What was important was how will I survive? So the sense of survival trumps everything, you know? And so what you have is a great resilient outlook. You know, people, great strength of character, which a lot of people who live through partition still embody, incredible strength. But I feel like in that strength and in that looking forward, like my grandfather always looked forward. He had no interest in talking about partition, but I, I think that in doing so, we really lost that immediate sense of holding on to memory. It doesn't help that as South Asians, we are not really conversant within generations. You know, we don't exactly have open conversations about how we feel. Right. And so the other thing I asked my grandmother was at the time of partition, if someone like me, like an oral historian or a journalist was going around asking you, how did you feel? What happened? What do you remember? Would you have spoken to them? And And she said, no, she said, no. Why? She said, because she said there was no need to talk about what had happened. But I feel like, well, I feel like she's, she says that, but then she does talk to me. And I I want to say that it takes very gentle, continual um, asking on the part of the descendant, because these kind of memories aren't really offered and if they are offered, then you're lucky. I know people that grew up with stories of partition, but I didn't. And I, I also know that that is the majority. You have to ask, you know, and then also you'll say, why do you want to know? What will it change? That's the other thing that doesn't happen with Holocaust. You know, when Holocaust descendants ask stories, they are told stories because in telling the story, you are also telling the descendant, look, something like this should never happen again. And I feel like we've kind of missed out on that a little bit. And I wonder if we had shared stories, if our grandparents and great grandparents had shared their experiences of not just the violence, but what it felt to live in undivided India. Yeah. Would relationships between common people of India and Pakistan be better? Because the other wouldn't be so hardened anymore, right? The other would be human. You know, one of the interesting things about the stories that people were telling you is that all that could happen easily again in this day and age. That was the most crazy part. Like in within within like a day, anything, all that can just be repeated as and and in exact detail, which was the most craziest part of it. And I kept thinking that we we don't have a contingency plan if something like this happens again. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane. And and the ideologies that caused all that the the hate, the anger, the the nationalism. It's all. Like it's the ingredients are all still there just the way it was. And it could just happen again. Speaking of memory, have you considered that the people you were interviewing were hiding the fact that they had a role in the, in the riots and the murder and the violence. And that leads to my bigger question is one of the complications about doing oral history is that it relies on people's memory and people's biases and people's perspectives, which isn't really reliable 
So how did you deal with that when you were listening to these people's stories? I think one of the things I'm really particular about saying is that I'm an oral historian, mm-hmm. not, not just a historian, which, you know, um, take it with a pinch of salt. That's right. what I have learned. But the other thing is that what I was doing and many other oral historians do is record people's memories as they remember it. Now, there obviously, the reason that there is a need to record people's memories is because official archive or official documentation has not done justice to the enormity of trauma that has continued to exist, not just from that time, but as some sort of genealogical imprint through the generations. There is a reason why we are recording people's voices and the things that they remember because official archive doesn't give us the means to imagine what it was like. Yeah. No. Um, Why is it that the first thing we think about when we think of partition is those trains, you know, that's the first image that comes to everyone's mind, trains laden with people, people sitting on top, but it's never like the neighbor that was, torn apart by his friend, like from his friend or the fiance who never saw, you know, the lover or, or children that never went to school again, or people who fell in love in a refugee camp. These are the things we never think about because popular media has perpetuated the image of violence and otherness. And what was the question? (laughs) Um, you know, how do you deal with, uh, veracity of memory? That's right. Um, now if, firstly, it's very, (laughs) it's very hard for someone to talk about partition. This much is evident whether 60 years have passed, 30 years have passed, even 75 years have passed for someone to go back to that time is quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So if someone is opening up to you and trusting you, with probably their most vulnerable life experience, then I feel like it's your responsibility to reproduce it in, you know, a book or a film or whatever you're doing in the most authentic sense. Like I felt that great responsibility. And yes, sometimes I questioned whether what I was being told was true or not. But I feel like at some point it doesn't really matter. If like an 85 year old is telling you that they lost so much land in what is now Pakistan. In fact, that's the most common thing I find. It's very hard to find humor when you talk of partition. So the most common thing I I found was when people who migrated from Pakistan to India said that like we had so much land in Pakistan, you know, and everyone is telling you the same thing. And mm-hmm. you're thinking like, how big is, is Pakistan? You know, everyone had so much land there. So that's the one thing I thought that, okay, maybe, you know, the, the demonstration of wealth, maybe that isn't quite accurate. But apart from that, I almost never question, or at least try not to question whether someone is telling me the truth. Because, you know, like, what is truth? What is truth? Know? Yeah. Right. Interviews and, and oral histories often reveal small but very powerful details nuance of history and you know most of us know partition from a macro point of view from a big picture point of view but when you're listening to these stories and when people submit stories to me you get these kind of little details yes that give it flesh and life and Mm -hmm. i was wondering before going into these interviews was there something someone said that surprised you and what was it 
about the history of partition, one of the things that surprised me, or at least took me away, was there was a story about a jeweler, a Sikh jeweler who migrated to Delhi. And he was talking about how the people in the city didn't want these refugees in here. And I never thought about partition from the point of view of the people in the city who were seeing all these refugees come in and, and changing their society and their language and their demographics. So that to me was very interesting. So I was wondering if you've had any, you know, enlightening moments. So many, I feel like on an everyday basis. And that's really the joy, you know, yeah. when you realize you don't know everything. And when you're forced to learn what, unlearn what you do know, I feel like that was like the most, the most wonderful thing for me because it really shows you where your invisible biases and prejudices are. Um, okay, well, what intrigued me the most was one of the things that people would bury stuff in the courtyards and floors of their houses. At the time, not everyone trusted banks. And so, you know, they would bury their jewels or their money and stuff in the walls, as, as did the Mughals. It, it was a common practice since that time. So when people were leaving at partition, because they were so sure that they would return, that this, the riots, the violence, it was all temporary. A lot of people buried stuff in the ground, in the wall, in their house, in the garden, you know, in the backyard. And I heard this story about a family who had done that in Lahore and uh, they never went back. And many, many years after partition, the gentleman had a chance to go back and he knocked on the door of that house and a Muslim family was living there in Lahore Sher, Andrun Sher. And he said, you know, this was my house and I used to live here. And they were so kind. They welcomed him in. Everything was the same. They were using some of the furniture also that was left behind. Wow. So he really like, he felt like someone had cared for his home. Then he said, uh, I, you know, my brother, he buried some gold here. And uh, I was wondering if you found it. So family says, no, no, we didn't find any gold. And he was like, Itna, there was so much gold. There was so much, you know, necklaces and jewelry and coins and everything. So the family's like, no, we didn't find anything. Then when uh, the gentleman was to leave Pakistan, uh, maybe a week or two later, he went back to the house to say goodbye. And he found that the entire house had been dug up in, you know, many different places because the family was trying to look for what was buried. Uh, I thought that was like a funny, in a way, quite sad as well. Yeah, yeah. But I see your point. The other thing that I, I mean, I didn't know about my own family this, I'm just giving you like a few examples off the top of my head. Um, my grandmother came to Delhi where her eldest sister was staying already. She was married. And um, so they thought, okay, well, we have family here. We're just going to live with them. And this is to your point of how people didn't always welcome people from the other side of the border. So her sister's family, she stayed with her in-laws and everything. So her sister's in-laws were like, now your mother has come with so many children and how, how are we going to feed them? We don't have so much money. We don't have so much ration. And so my great-grandmother actually took all her children and stood on the platform of New Delhi Railway Station on August 16, 1947 to go back to Pakistan. And she said that if this is how I'm to be treated in this free land, then I would rather go back to what is my vatan, you know, my, my motherland the land that I was born on and the land that I may die on. And I didn't know that about my family. And I felt like there was so much strength in, in that relationship to your soil. 
And I often wondered whether we have that, you know, our generation has that. This is something I thought about a lot, actually. That's that's fascinating. I want to think about this after this episode's over. Um, all of these stories revolve around a object uh, from the time of partition, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like a souvenir, an artifact. And it's the objects are really beautifully portrayed in your book. And they're not just objects. They're like uh, a thing that holds a memory or it can be a reminder of the past or almost like evidence, like proof that this is something that happened once upon a time. And it's a... Um, it can also be a thing that a grandparent and a grandkid could bond over and connect. And there's this one story in your book about a man who doesn't have anything, who has no objects, nothing. And I couldn't stop thinking about this guy. And I was wondering if he regretted. I was wondering what your thoughts on it, because I'm, I was thinking if he would, you know, if that's a bad thing to not have anything and was unless he was trying to forget, but. I don't know what my, I don't explain this. Um, you know, I was thinking about him a lot and I was wondering if, you know, if it's a bad thing to not have anything, if he regrets that he didn't, it's a regret that he didn't know he has, you know, others are the other survivors better off than him because they have something and he didn't. And I wanted to know what your thoughts are, were on that. And I wanted to know that because, you know, I'm not the type of person who has sentimental objects around me. I don't really care about photographs and things like that. And then I was thinking maybe I should care. Maybe I should make the effort. Maybe it is important to have things like that when you are of old age to as reminders, as a, as a something to pass to the next generations. So what were your thoughts on that? I suppose the question is, is it better to remember or is it better to forget? Yeah, I guess that is much. I should have um, just asked that. <laughs> no, no, but your way of thinking is also, um, I, th- I thought about this a lot. Like what happens to us after we remember? Do we feel happy? Do we feel sad? Do we feel burdened? Do we feel um, lost? Yeah. Do we feel like that moment is inaccessible? Do we feel like we'll never be able to cross over? Or, our, or our memories are the only things we have in the end. Yeah. And some people do like, um, you know, I also want to say that emotions don't exist separate from each other they like conflicting emotions can coexist Mm -hmm. for instance deep nationalism and deep longing can coexist nationalism for the land you chose deep longing for the land you left behind they can coexist it's very complicated similarly remembering and forgetting can also coexist wanting to remember needing to forget you know these can coexist and i think that that gentleman in specific It's one of my favorite stories. I know that he didn't have an object, but the reason is that he taught me something so much greater. You know, I went in, this gentleman lived in Delhi, not far from me. He passed away last year, by the way. So um, many of the people I've interviewed, in fact, I want to say most. I was going to ask you about that, how you feel about that, because you are technically the object, I guess, you know, the collective vessel of, yeah. of memory of these people and now you are I guess responsible for it and I want to know what pressures I mean I guess we should answer the first question before I ask you the second question but I'll ask it anyways right now mm-hmm. I wanted to know how it feels because as a as an oral historian you're also a vessel a keeper and I want to know what pressures and responsibility do you and weight do you feel on your shoulders it's just a really large, big question. Yeah, it is. But there's a lot of pressure. If someone submits a story to me and I post it, and mine's just like 
10 lines and it's just a quick post on Instagram. But I still feel so much pressure to, to not mess this up as I should, because it's a sacred thing. As but here, should. but that's me comparatively. You have, you know, days of co- hours of conversation, artifacts, objects, you are in the field. So the pressure that I feel must be multiplied by a million for you. Like you have like a hundred thousand more followers, so the pressure may be like equal because you're disseminating information, which is equally as important, right? Like the thing with the book is that not everyone is going to go out and buy it, so my reach is only going to be limited to the people who actually want to make the effort to buy it and read it, right? And right. think about it after that. I mean, I think with Instagram, like there is so much more of a responsibility to actually disseminate information that is unbiased ethical and portrays the person whose story you're telling in the light that they want to be portrayed in i feel like that's the same kind of responsibility that i took on as well right no no no. because because in the end of the day what matters is the who what matters is what the person who who told you the story thinks and for me it's usually the the descendant of a partition member but with you it's the the survivor of partition and and that person like is a very valuable precious uh witness of what happened and so the pressure on you to to do it right to 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 tell it and you know what i don't even think you're you know you have to kind of make it interesting you know so that cuz cuz there are a lot of people you know you have to tell it in a in a nice interesting engaging way because you you have this responsibility where you need to get people interested in this i don't you know what is a memory if not read and told and and heard right yeah, yeah. so you have this responsibility so i don't want to make this about me this is about you so the pressure on you is a lot and and it's a beautiful thing that you're doing it, it really is and it's it's amazing but there's also a really big responsibility that comes with that and and i want to know how you felt about that i i agree with you uh, the only reason why i was deflecting is because um but i guess that's just what i do you know, um, which is the same as when people say, oh, I really enjoyed your book. It's so nice. And, you know, and, and I say, thank you. And you know that it means something to somebody and they've connected with their grandparents. But I feel like I'm not the greatest at taking compliments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I deflect. Me too. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now that you've cornered me, I feel like I should really think about it. Uh, do I feel pressure? If and I'm being completely man. honest. May I add mm-hmm. something also? Yeah, you of know, course. Add you, Why not? <laughs> you you mentioned that uh, a lot of the survivors that you took their stories aren't alive anymore. So, mm-hmm. so that adds, I guess, to the the beauty of it and the the value of it and the and how precious it is now, even more precious than it was before. And I also wanted to know, did did you go back and and show I them? These down. <laughs> Sorry. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, this book Mm. just makes you think a lot. And um, I want to know, you know, it's funny. The contrast is that these people were never asked about their experience of partition, barely asked. And And then next thing you know, their stories are published in a book. The contrast between the two is amazing. And I want to know that if any of if any of them had the chance to read what you wrote and by the way saw the photos that you took which by the way were very beautifully taken um well let's just start at the beginning yeah. uh, i always think of my process as collaborative 
which means that yes, the book has my name on it and you know, yes, I sell it and everything, but uh, the story doesn't belong to me, even though I may have been the one to unearth it. So you have to be very clear that this is not about you. This is about the person who's selling the story. When you get that clear in your head, I think things start to make sense quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Even though you are telling the story, it has nothing to do with you. So how you feel, whether it's sad or upset or happy or anxious or, or just bawling your eyes out, it doesn't matter. What matters is for the person who is telling the story, the living history as it, as it was, to tell it in the way they want it told in how little or how many words they want to told, because not everyone is a, is a speaker, right? And the thing about oral history is that it's not only about what is said, but also what is unsaid. So, and this is something you will have to learn on the job, what a gesture says, how your body moves, the way your voice lilts, when you get more excited, when you get more sad, why do these things happen to people? I feel like that's a lot of physical, the, the physical responding to the psychological, the physiological responding to the psychological, I suppose. So I had to learn all of this quite quickly and uh, not always successfully because I, I, I still learn every day. But what I was very particular about is that when I speak to somebody and I write down their story or I take their photograph, they always see it. They always have it. I always send them photographs. Um, in terms of the chapters, when I wrote them, I sent it to them. They checked it, they read it, they corrected things. You know, sometimes when you're talking, you may mishear something or you may spell something the wrong way or you may get completely confused between years and dates. So it was very important for the person whose story it is to go through it, read it, correct it. And then I say, okay, this is the final version. Are you happy with it? So everything was quite collaborative in that sense. Right. And I think for some people, like I remember there's a story about... Lieutenant General Essen Sharma in my book, who was um, who retired as the chief of engineering in the Indian Army. And he's like 98 years old now. And we are friends. I say we're friends because, you know, I, I had that kind of comfort with him. But I remember when I showed him his chapter for the first time, I printed it out and I took it back to his house and I said, well, this is for you. Take a few days and read it and then just get back to me. And he said, no, 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 sit down. Let's, let's read it now. So he's like going through the chapter and he's making notes. Yes, but he's like nodding to himself as if to say like, yes, this is right. Yes, this happened. And he's telling me again, you know, like all of this really happened. And I said to him, yes, I know because I recorded you. So all of this is what you have said. And he's agreeing with himself, you know, because it's um, so that's that's one thing. Another instance is and I just learned of this like two days ago. There is a story in my book, I think the story that really changed, it opened my mind. It was a story from Mirpur about Ajit Kaur Kapoor. Mm-hmm. And she migrated from Mirpur, which is- uh, The sword. With the sword, exactly. Now I was, um, they live in Chandigarh. So I was gonna be in Chandigarh. So I wrote to her, his, her grandson and said that, listen, I'm gonna be in Chandigarh. I would love to see you, you all of you again. Uh, this is one thing I do. I like to keep in touch with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you've been such an intimate part of their lives and whether them or their descendants, it's always nice to keep in touch. So I tell him that, listen, I would love to see your grandmother. And he said, well, I'm not in India anymore. But, you know, sometimes my grandmother tells people that, listen, there's a book and my story is published in that book and you should read it. 
That's cute. And I thought, I thought that was incredible because you know what that means? There's ownership over a previously unvoiced history. You know, it means, and it, it's a lot for someone to, I know that the history is yours, but it's a lot for someone to accept that such a thing, such a violent, horrible, catastrophic thing happened to us and we were able to move on from it or, you know, build again or reestablish ourselves. So I feel like I, it's a very open bond between me and my interviewees always, whether the interviewee is like 90 or 30 or, you know, 16. That's, that's one thing I'm very particular about. Um, do I feel a responsibility? Enormously, enormously. And I'm always, you know, the other thing I'm very particular about is the fact that I know what I write will be read by not just Indians in India where I live, but also Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. So if something is being said, which may impact the relationship between the three countries more adversely than it already has, I'm, I'm mindful of that. Similarly, like I'll always, um, I'll try at least to show that if one side did something, then the other side may also have, you know. Um, I think that stories of the past can inform relationships in the future. I do believe that. And if the stories I tell can engage the people of the three nations and inspire some sense of empathy between them rather than animosity, then I want to be on that side of history. And I think this, this plays out for me quite badly sometimes because I get, you know, um, I get termed things like anti-national, pro-Pakistani, Paki lover, things like that. And it's taken me a long time to just not let that bother me because the trolling culture is real and particularly real in India. Yeah. You know, uh, with a majoritarian party, it is, it is real and any affiliation you have with Pakistan is scrutinized. And my relationship with Pakistan and Pakistanis is beautiful. I, I, it's very meaningful and I would like to continue it and continue to do research in that country and record the stories of people who are no different than my grandparents. So I always take into account the sentiments of our neighbors as well. When I'm listening to something, when I'm writing about something. You've mentioned this, but you actually went to Pakistan. And, yes. you know, what was your experience like that over there? And, and how do you find that there's any difference between how partition is narrated over there than in India? So I have to say that had I not gone to Pakistan, I would have never started writing about partition. Really? Um, and the person I have to credit, let this be on the record, is Ali Sethi. Ali Sethi, really? Yeah. The first time I went to Pakistan was in 2014. And I was doing my thesis, which was on partition and objects. But it was a photographic thesis, you know, because I was in a fine art program. So hence, you, you saw all those photographs of people. And I was recording stories, but I didn't really do anything with the stories in my thesis. I had them and I started using them only later. But uh, when I was in Pakistan for the first time, I had applied to be a short-term researcher at the Citizens Archive of Pakistan. Yeah. Who gave me access to people who had migrated from India. And while I was there, Ali was living there. And he was working with his father, who runs the Friday Times. And he said to me, oh, Anshul, wouldn't it be great if you wrote a piece about how it feels to be an Indian in Pakistan? And I said, Ali, like, sorry to burst your bubble, but it pretty much feels the same. <laughs> you know, um, 
I think it's because I'm I'm North Indian and we are, you know, linguistically, physically quite similar to Pakistanis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really like, I didn't feel anyone was staring at me. I, I didn't stand out. And I, yes, my speech is a little more Hindi than a little more Urdu. But apart from that, I felt like I managed pretty well. So then I said, Ali, why don't I write about something else? Like, why don't I write about what I'm doing here, which is looking for objects of partition. And that was the first time I wrote anything meaningful. And it was published in the Friday Times in 2014. And that's when no I started. No way. Writing. Yeah, I started thinking about writing in a serious way, writing about my history, writing about the history I shared with my neighbors. Um, thank you, Ali. That's amazing. That's very, that's a small world. Amazing. Being in Pakistan really opened my eyes to how. You know, sometimes I feel like this partition line between us, like it, it's invisible. Like I'm talking to you, Essen, and for all you, for all I know, like you could also have been from Delhi, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if I start speaking in Urdu right now, you will understand me. If right. you start speaking, I will understand you. When, when Indians and Pakistanis meet outside of South Asia, outside of their respective territories, they're less territorial. And there's something that really binds us together. There's something really intrinsic that cannot sometimes even be explained in words. I feel such such an innate connection to a place called Malakwal in Pakistan that I've never been to. And I don't know whether I'll ever be able to go, but I know it's mine because my grandfather's from there. You know, being in Delhi, being born and raised in Delhi, when we were young and we had holidays, like vacations and stuff, everyone would say, I'm going to my nani's house in Punjab. I'm going to my nana's house in, you know, Bengal, Kerala. And I didn't have any, I didn't have any like place to go to. Like my nani nana live in a refugee colony. My dadi dada live in a refugee colony. Delhi is ours by default. I don't have any ancestral land. I don't have a pin. I don't have a place. I don't have a land that's mine here mm-hmm. they're all across the border so when i was in pakistan i felt such a and i'm not the only one i can't possibly be the only one because when people go there they set foot on that soil and they know that it's theirs despite all the nationalistic you know hangama around it you know that you know that like your ancestor came from here so i think when i was in pakistan i went with a very open mind open heart and I was 24 years old. And I'm now in hindsight, I think to myself, like, I wasn't scared at all. It was the year that Imran Khan was taking out a political rally from Karachi to Lahore. Mm-hmm. And it was around the same time, September 2014. And everyone is telling me that it's going to be so dangerous. You're going to die. And I'm thinking, like, I'm from Delhi. I could die crossing the street. Like, <laughs> why, I mean, why it's... Nothing happened to me. The worst thing that happened in Pakistan was that there was torrential downpour. It was raining every day, which it does in Delhi also. There's monsoon. So I think the fact that I went with such openness meant that I was received with openness. I feel like if I had gone with fear and anxiety, then, you know, my experience would have mirrored that. Mm-hmm. My nani's brother said, please go to the shop in Anarkali Bazaar and get me Peshawari Chappal from there only. And if you don't go there and go elsewhere, I will know. 
So I was like, okay, fine. And he like drew his foot on a paper, you know, like this is my size and get a chapel based on that. And I went to Anarkali, I found this shop, I bought the chapels for him. We had a great conversation with the owner. But I feel like it's, you have, you have to have that kind of openness to talk to people. You have to, you have to be willing to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I went with in Pakistan. And I, it was incredible because you saw how similar and different partition is there. You see how it continues to, it continues to sit at the back of people's heads because it is the start of nationhood. So the two nation theory is always it's sort of woven into the psyche of Pakistanis. But at the same time, after long conversations with them, aspects of longing can emerge. And sometimes it's, it's quite heartbreaking to see that, that they don't know when they're going to go home. And it's the similar, it's the same thing with Indians. You know, they don't know when they're going to go home. They don't know when they're going to see their land. They don't know whether it's the same. They don't know whether their house is still standing. And that sense of belonging to a place that's almost sort of like a fictional place now, you know? Like the mm-hmm. imagined landscape of the past is similar on both sides. There's a lot of autobiographies and memoirs of individuals in history who went through terrible, horrible, extraordinary situations. And and the books usually tend to reflect on their experience. You know, they try to find meaning in it. Uh, they try to understand life, God, the universe. You know, for example, there's a Holocaust memoir called Night by Elie Wiesel. I think I'm pronouncing it wrong. But in the end of his Holocaust experience, he believes that uh, in the end, everyone lives and dies for himself alone, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's a very anti-fate, you know, there is no God kind of message. So obviously you have 21 stories here with 21 different perspectives and different uh, ideas and perspectives on life. But I was wondering after, you know, hearing all these stories, these traumatic, terrible situations, what is your take on fate and God and the unknown? I'm not like I uh, now I'm thinking like do you mean literal faith or religion like because I'm, not, I'm not I don't mean like faith. your religion your specific religion I just mean in the grand scheme of things like what does it all, all mean you know someone could say everything happens for a reason and someone says the this holocaust author says nothing happens for a reason it's just chaos and and you wonder <laughs> You wonder, I mean, I'm sure you think about life and like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, why, know. why did this happen? And it's just so random and it's crazy. So, you know, two things. I think of two things very often. One is that um, the human being is a hugely adaptable being. You know, the human can adapt to any circumstance, good or bad the extremities as well, which mm-hmm. is what so many people did at partition. And I, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully comprehend or appreciate just how adaptable we are as people. You know, you are a South Asian male who lived in Montreal in like the minus 35 degree weather. Yeah. You're back to do that. So did I. I. So often I used to think to myself, like I am a person from a tropical country living in a, like a sub zero climate. I adapted, that's physical adaptation. But also I think mental adaptation. Um, That's one thing, I think about that a lot. Every story teaches me something about the hugely adaptable human nature. The other thing that I think about a lot is something that when I was in Pakistan, I had a driver, but I don't really like to call him that. He's kind of like, 
like my man friday sort of person mm-hmm. his name was khizarji and he is incredible he was incredible then because he really wanted to know what i was doing and why i was speaking to old people and why this girl from india had come all by herself to talk about you know this this old time and he said something to me one day when i had a a pretty bad interview like i yeah i think it was a pretty disappointing interview in my opinion i was sitting at the back of the car and we were near minare pakistan and he was looking at me we were on the flyover and he was looking at me from the rear view mirror and i was ready to cry and he said to me what happened and i said no the interview wasn't good and he in his like great punjabi you know doling out punjabi wisdom to me all the time me city girl who doesn't really know any punjabi and he said to me haath ki paanch ungliyan na same nahi hoti hain so all five fingers of the hand are not the same Mm-hmm. which means that every experience you have with every individual will be different and i felt like that's all i needed to hear at that point so this interview may have been bad but the next one will be good and i can't i can't real you know i like i can't go into this spiral thinking about how bad it was and i often apply that to my life that um, every experience cannot be compared to the other and uh, i don't know if this answers your question at all but this is what i think about a lot uh it has nothing to do with faith oh god <laughs> um but often i do think like i wish partition hadn't happened and then i think to myself okay if partition hadn't happened i wouldn't be alive i mean but that's like a really extreme thing you know but if partition hadn't happened my grandparents would be there they would be flourishing their lives would have been better people we don't know that we don't know that we don't know that right i mean this is like really wishing and thinking but i wonder like is it something that i should ask my interviewees do you wish partition hadn't happened you know i think about this a lot and what about your concept of home The one thing I want to say before that is I have learned grudgingly not to compare myself with that wow. time. You're right. You know, um, it's no but it's happened after a long time because you can't help it, you know. You really can't help it. You're thinking, okay, everyone is dying, everyone is losing everything and you've taken like a piece of cloth with you? Really? And you have nothing and I have all of this and you know it really like I I have really had to learn how to divorce myself from the stories. Um uh, because it's it's impacted me quite negatively as a person. Mm-hmm. Um my concept of home. I wrote about this in my new book. Um I I wrote about it after I asked my parents. So I asked my parents, what do you say when people say where are you from? And um they say where we are born is where we are from by that standard my father is from delhi my mother is from toronto my grandparents are from different parts of what became pakistan but i don't feel like i'm entirely from delhi i was born here i live here but i feel like i have parts of me everywhere like when i go to lahore i feel like lahore is my lahore mera shehar hai you know Yeah. I feel like mine because my nani is from there and she was from Shahalmi and you know Andrun Shahar is mine. Lahore is also like a twin of Delhi. 
So when you're in Lahore, it's quite easy to forget that you're not in Delhi. And um, when I think of Northwestern Frontier Province, KPK, I, I wish, I imagine one day I will go there. One day I will go to Malakwal and it will also feel like mine. Because I, I, I suppose maybe home has nothing to do with the physicality of home. And everything to do with the sense of belonging to even an abstract place. Right. Which is what I've garnered through my interviews that if I say to somebody who is who has lived in India for like 75 years of their life, where are you from? And they still say, I'm from Chak Hamid or I'm from Laul Pindi or I'm from Peshawar. Then there has to be something intrinsically binding you to that place to believe in it seven and a half decades later. So why can't I, who have only heard about these places in memory, also feel like part of me is there? You know? Wow. Something to think about. Not for everyone, I think. <laughs> but certainly for me. What What is the museum of material memory? So when I was doing these interviews with people, uh, word got out over a number of years. And then people started writing to me as they write to you with stories that uh, we have this Hamam Dasta, we have this uh, Fulkari Bagh, we have this walking stick, but we are in all different parts of the world. How can we contribute to your project? And I started thinking to myself that this is, there must be a way to create an organic archive of material culture. You know, it's one thing for a historian to go to your house and like take, take your story down and you know, it's very official but you're not the bearer of that story anymore. You haven't written it. You haven't felt it. You haven't done the interview. So how can I make people empowered bearers of their own stories? So I shared this with a friend of mine who I actually went to high school with. And she said, this is, we should set up this digital museum and we should not limit it to partition. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's a great idea. So we together, her name is Navdha. We share the same last name, but we are not sisters, mm -hmm. which is a question we are often asked. Uh, we set this thing up called the Museum of Material Memory, which looks at material culture from South Asia and its diaspora. Uh, has nothing to do with partition, but it is a way to encourage generally younger people to look at objects that they have grown up with and don't know anything about and know more about them. So if there's like a vase in your house that's been there ever since you've been alive, it's a way for you to ask someone elder in your house saying, okay, what, what's the story of this? And where is this from? Or if you've seen a sword hanging on the wall, you know, where is this from? What was it used? And I feel like the, there are a couple of key aims of the museum. One of them is intergenerational conversation. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the fact that it's digital and therefore accessible to people on all sides of the border because you know, the internet is, is a beautiful borderless medium and we must make use of that. So I think if someone from Pakistan sees an object that is used by someone in Nepal and says, oh, I have the same object in my house. It also makes us kind of see each other a bit more humanly. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, uh, if that's someone cool. wanted to access the museum or to see the museum, how would they do it? www.museumofmaterialmemory.com Awesome. And my last question, the final mm -hmm. question, it's an easy question, I think. What is the next, what is your next project? 
So for the last many years, I have been working on a book on generational memory. And it was, the seed was sown because I, I started reading a lot of second generation stories from the Holocaust. And a lot of people would talk about how they had inherited memories from their parents and how it had impacted or shaped them as people. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's something called post-memory. Memory after the fact. And I started thinking that we don't have an archive like this for partition. We have only just started having an archive of partition. So I started speaking to people. And, and this was kind of around the same time I was working on remnants also. So if I would interview someone and their grandchildren or children were sitting in the same room, I would often ask them, like, how much did you know of this? Or what do you feel? Do you feel connected to partition? Do you, do you care about it? It's basically to know whether partition is still relevant and does it impact subsequent generations of partition affected families like does a 16 year old growing up in say Hyderabad have any inkling of what happened in their city at partition or in their family or someone even growing up in Delhi like do they hear stories from their grandparents great-grandparents does it impact them in ways they don't realize I feel like does it? Well, I mean, you can't generalize, right? But I think the thing with partition is that it's such a, like that word is like, the word is sort of electric. You know, if you have, if you are a South Asian person, even though you may not know the gravity of what partition was, you immediately know the word partition is important. Mm-hmm. Particularly, I think if you're from like the North Indian, Pakistan, Bangladesh belt, not maybe not so much South India, but uh, North India particularly, like I knew partition was an important word, even when I didn't really understand it in its entirety as a child. And even though no stories were told to me. So it is a collection of many conversations with Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis about partition and their second, third, fourth generation. And um, the other thing I was very particular about in this next book is that um all stories center on violence somehow. And I found that really unfair because like in such an event, the enormity of your emotional, like, you know, like extremities can't, like it just can't be limited to violence. So each chapter is uh, based on an emotion and each story is based around that theme. So there are stories on love, there are stories on hope, there are stories on friendship, there are stories on belonging, uh, borderlands, the other, the quotidian. Um, because I just think that we need to think of other ways to imagine partition than the conventional violence and bloodshed. But um, obviously making this answer very, very long somehow. Don't worry um, about it. The book is coming out at the end of April and it's called In the Language of Remembering. Well, I can't wait. I'm sure you have a big fan club by now and I'm sure they can't wait. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. This was awesome. This was such, this is amazing. I just love how the conversation was so intense. And at the end, we're like, okay, that's it. It's done. It's done. Um, but thank you so much for having me. And, um, I think what you do for really for the world is a great service because you make these stories accessible and you make people imagine realities far away from their own. 
So I, I really appreciate what you do. Thank you so much. I, I don't think I could have done any of this if it weren't for people like you in the field and, and doing it long before I came along. I just, I'm just like a stepping stone for the, for the big stuff. So people can, you know, get us, get a taste of this and then really go and get the full meal from, from your books and from people's books. So don't worry about that. But uh, yeah, I think we're good. I'm just going to stop recording.